you have a Bible, please open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll soon be reading that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, we would offer and invite you to take one from the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find 1 Corinthians 6 on page 897 of that Bible. Our proclamation in Christianity, what we speak to a lost world, what we do ourselves even here this morning is honestly pretty simple and straightforward. Especially during the Christmas season, we would stress the graciousness of our God to become human. He takes on flesh, the fullness of God, dwelling with us as a baby, as a child, in order that that man may someday grow up and lay down his life for ours. Would die a death that he did not owe, instead taking on the wrath that was due to us for our sin. Out of his desire to be kind and gracious to us, out of his love for justice, Jesus dies for our sins. And yet, he is resurrected to show his victory over sin, his victory over death, his own innocence in what he has done. And through these gives us salvation from death and from wrath as a pure gift. Trust in that gift. Trust in the work that Jesus has already done. Our proclamation is fairly simple. But once we start to say things like, how are we now to act? What are we to do in this world? The Lord does not simply rapture us upon our salvation, but he leaves us here to promote the word to evangelize, to encourage other believers, how are we then to live? Paul, not just in 1 Corinthians, but everywhere, instructs us that we are now free from the law of Moses. We do not adhere to the law of Moses. We don't join ourselves to it. We are not promoted by works, but by a gift. We are in a new age of the Spirit. And so for Christians, many have come to the solution that that means that we are completely free from any sort of restrictions. We can do whatever we want. And you might think that's really far-fetched, but I at more than one time have heard pastors say that we don't talk about sin because sin's not an issue anymore. Jesus forgives us. Paul would come back, I think, quickly and say, no, no, that's actually not true. But if that's not true, then are we to follow the law? And Paul would actually say, no, that's not true either. Christians, for the most part, are left then saying, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's not the law that we're to follow. It's not that proclamation of what is right and wrong that we're supposed to do, but I'm not left up to my own devices and what I I love myself. What, What are we to do? How are we to determine how we are to live in this world? And Paul clearly is not troubled by saying that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We talked about that just last week. The man caught in this grave form of sexual immorality, Paul would quite gladly come back and say, no, that that isn't just bad, that's wrong. It's evil and wicked and needs to be put out. So he's not against that. He's not against telling us you ought to do these things. These are mandatory things for you to do. And he's not against coming back and saying, these are mandatory things that you never do. He's able to say things like that. But Paul understands that something must drive what is right and what is wrong. It's not arbitrary. And true, God's word does that. But he also understands that we don't have a concordance that's going to list every single thing that's going to confront us. 
And it's a good thing, too, because there are issues that confront you and I in the 21st century that Paul would have no way of writing about. Many of the problems that Paul knows of are not going to be problems for this church. The two that we're going to talk about today, as far as I know, praise God, are not issues within this church. And issues that might be within this church, Paul would have no idea how to write about those. How is Paul to instruct us how often we ought to be on our cell phones? How is Paul to instruct us how we're to navigate technology and things like that? So how are we to know? Paul's answer, which frankly comes up quite a bit once you start to see it, is something that I think would make a lot of sense to folks in his day, but not as much to people in our day. The basic idea is you are to be who you should be, which doesn't sound like very much. But once you know what purpose and end you have been made for, once you know what God has created you to do, that tells you how you are to live. And in Jesus, we might say it a little bit differently. We are to honor God by being like Jesus. We find that in the work of Jesus, this is who we are to be. And what's more important is we find that by telling us who we are to be, we become those things is not necessarily the right way to talk about them. We're not becoming those things at all. Rather, we're acting like who we are in Jesus. Today in 1 Corinthians 6, we've got two examples of how I think this works out. In two great areas of our lives, our possessions and our passions. So if you would, please read 1 Corinthians 6 with me. There, the Apostle Paul writes these words. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? And to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of our Lord. First thing I would put before you this morning as we work through this text is you should trust the Spirit with your possessions. You should trust the Spirit with your possessions. It seems that more issues were going on in Corinth than just issues of sexual misconduct, which we will come to more of here in just a moment, and general theological concerns and factions and divisions. But there are lawsuits being brought up between believers. And these are likely of an economic nature. Paul mentions being defrauded, and these are the most likely things to have come up between believers that they would take before a law court. Now, a constant problem in this chapter and in the remaining chapters of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is talking about a situation that he clearly understands, and the Corinthians are in that same situation. And so they can talk sort of in code to one another, if you will, without giving all of the details about what's going on. So we know that they're being taken to the courts. We don't know who the parties are who are doing this, what their status is in the church or in the world. We don't really know much about the lawsuits themselves. It is likely that they're economic. It's likely that someone did work that they weren't paid for or someone got paid for something that they haven't done. There was a contract voided. Something happened. Greater of a concern than that, though, Paul says, is that these particular issues between brothers and sisters within the church are being taken not to the people of the body of the church, but rather to outside courts. He seems to think that this is so out of practice for Christians that common sense ought to rule over this thing a long time ago. Why not have the saints judge instead? Instead, you take it to those who are unrighteous, That unrighteous refers very kindly to two different aspects of these judges. One, it is the fact that most Greco-Roman judges were pretty unrighteous. It's well documented that people back then didn't have even a glancing concern for the poor. And the wealthy could not only bribe judges, the wealthy oftentimes knew the judge personally. They went in the same social circles. The wealthy could also purchase better lawyers to defend their their rights. And, And as we've seen, Greek people are often swayed not by sound arguments, but by the sound of those arguments. And so oftentimes unrighteousness spread. So Paul does mean that, but he also means that they're unrighteous in in the fact that they're not justified by Christ. You have saints who have been justified by Christ. Saints who have been, been held captive to the very wisdom of God, which seems like foolishness to the people that you're going to. They are not justified in Christ because they think that Christ is nothing but foolishness. The most obvious answer that one would give back to Paul, I think, here would be, well, listen, Frank and Maude, great leather workers, kind people, dear brothers and sisters. But honestly, their knowledge of contract law is pretty minimal. I'm not sure that they can understand the nuance of of this thing, and I, I just don't think that this is something that we should trust to the hands of novices instead of going to experts. 
And Paul's retort is clear. Friend, Frank and Maude are going to judge the world. They're going to stand over nations. They're going to look at the treaties, the economic pacts. They're going to look at the human rights violations. They're going to look at the economic status of those nations. They're going to look at the laws that were passed in those nations, and they are going to judge them. Do you not think that they have competence to judge even your little trivial cases? When you come to verse 4, Paul's statement here seems to imply a question. I think rather that it's meant to imply a statement. Those who have no standing are actually those who are despised. It's a stronger word than the ESV kind of makes it seem like. And I think what Paul is saying is, I tell you what, what you ought to do is you ought to go to the people who you think least of in the church. The people that you despise within the church, clearly there are factions, clearly there are issues of people suing one another, so go to those who you think would be the worst at deciphering stuff like this and appoint them because they're still better judges of these things than the people of the world, no matter how brilliant those lawyers might be. Take it to them. Of course, there is a reason why they didn't do this. They were very concerned Obviously, they took it to the church. The church might not see things the way that they see them. They would lose their arbitration. They would lose this economic reward that they think is coming to them. So they take it out to the people of the world. Paul says these things should never happen. Isn't it just better at that point just to be defrauded? You are, you are lowering the name of Jesus Christ, lowering the good name of the saints by taking not only this factions, these wars that you have going on between people, and then saying, we are not even wise enough to determine who's right and who's wrong here. It's better for you guys just to be defrauded. Now, as we're making sense of these things, there are a couple of things I want to say that people can easily take from this passage wrongly. The first is quite serious, and that is, given Paul's rhetoric here, it seems as though that church should handle any and every legal dispute that occurs between believers. So that if, if any problem occurs between two Christians in a church, given that Paul is saying, hey, we judge the world, shouldn't we be able to judge everything else? The implication is that anything that happens within the church in between two believers, the church is to judge. Now, the obvious limitation is that the scope of the damages there has to be limited between people in the church. So if somebody was defrauded by somebody outside of the church, quite clearly the church has absolutely no jurisdiction over them. As Paul has already said, what right do I have to judge the world? It's not my point to judge the world. But I would expand that to say that the scope of damages for a number of different things are actually more broad than we often give them credit for. When it comes to economic issues, churches hardly ever do this. Churches oftentimes have people within them suing other people within them for monetary damages. The one thing that the church has for a long time kept to itself and judged for itself and has been shown time and time again to do poorly are issues of abuse. And as we well know, issues of abuse have been mishandled by the church, whether you're Roman in the Roman Catholic Church, or whether you are Southern Baptist, we have seen examples of these in every church of every corner of the world be misdiagnosed, misjudged. 
The reason why, even between believers, these issues of abuse ought to be taken outside is because we rightly know that abuse has wide social implications that go beyond the scope of just the two people who are involved in that abuse. It's a criminal issue. It's a social issue, not just a civil issue. So while the church has a role to play in those things, we ought to immediately bring them to the authorities because it's very unlikely, and in almost every situation, that abuse will never be limited to just that one person. But there are other issues to clarify. The first, and I think most important of all of them, is this. Paul is not asking you to trust the nice people next to you. He's not saying, if you look around, take stock of the people who are members of your church, those who you feel like you're close to. Look at Frank and Maud, and understand that you are to put your economic future in their hand. The good news is that Paul's not asking you simply to trust them. The comparison at the beginning of his statement is incredibly important. The comparison is between the unrighteous of the world and the saints. And what is the difference between them? As Paul has already laid out, it is the work of the Spirit of God that has made them believers. It is the simple proclamation of something that ought to be the most foolish thing in the world to these people. Nevertheless, they have bought into because the Spirit has worked in them. They have the Spirit of God who searches the deep things of God and relays them to believers. If they have the Spirit of God, what you are trusting is not them. You are trusting the work of the Spirit in them to lead them to right judgment, to good, godly, wise judgment. You're not simply trusting the people of the church. You're trusting the Spirit's work among the people of God. From the humble and the lowly, the Spirit still moves and speaks among them. They might be novices in the way that the law is meant to work in the world, but they have access to the Spirit of God who searches the very deep things of God and relays that even to them. Trust the Spirit's work among them. And secondly... Paul is in no wise asking you just to take a loss. If you were helping somebody build a deck for a couple of months, and they said, hey, when we get done with this project, a pretty major project, I will pay you, and they don't pay you. And time passes, and they still haven't paid you, and time passes, they still haven't paid you. You should not hear Paul saying that you should keep a lid on your complaint so that unity isn't harmed or that Jesus' name not be despoiled. He isn't saying that at all. That's not what he means by, isn't it better to be defrauded? I think he means this. You are to take your problems to the church. You are to voice your complaint. The church ought to care about these things. It ought to care about weeding out sin in their midst. But when the church comes back, if you are concerned that the church is going to get it wrong, let's say the church, even from your vantage point, does get it wrong. The church, you think, mishandles the case. You think that injustice has been done, unrighteousness is prevailing. Paul then would say, isn't it still better that you're defrauded? Isn't that better than taking it to the outside courts? Paul doesn't just assume that that's going to happen, but there is precedent. After all, Jesus himself did not keep his complaints to himself. When he entered the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, this cup is not one that I want to drink. After all, it wasn't his cup. It wasn't his sin. 
that filled the cup with wrath? It wasn't his sexual immorality. It wasn't his idolatry. It wasn't his greediness. It wasn't his thievery. It wasn't his reviling. It wasn't any of of his work that had filled that cup up. It wasn't his cup. And let's be very, very clear. What happens to Jesus on the cross in every respect is unjust. He was, as a lamb before the slaughter, who was pure and clean and without sin. Nevertheless, it would be better for him to suffer for what he has done. That is nothing. It was better for him to suffer for his righteousness. It was better for him to suffer because of his goodness, because the Spirit had better things in plan. And it's quite clear that Jesus takes the cup to his lips and drinks it fully, for he suffers death only to be resurrected again. And it's not for anything that Paul immediately points out our inheritance. He's worried that you're concerned. You're going to lose economically in the world. You're not going to get paid for something. The church is going to not handle things well. You're not going to get the money you think you deserve. And Paul says, but don't you know that we have an inheritance? If you continue to act in this way, if you continue to act like people who are unrighteous and trust yourselves to people who are unrighteous, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, revilers, drunkards, they, they are not going to get the kingdom. Paul not only notes that they're not going to get the kingdom, he notes that you were some of these people. That these are words that describe the people of Corinth. But I beg of you to see how he talks about this. He doesn't say, and you were those people, and you still are, frankly, you disgusting people, So what you need to do is repent and come back and be cleansed and be made whole and pure and clean again. He says, no, 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 no. That has happened already. Everything that he says here is past tense. It's already come to pass. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Don't be worried about losing the things of this world, but be worried about losing the things of the next But Paul makes the case that the reason why you are to act this way, the reason why you are to allow the Spirit to care for your possessions is not because you're trying to earn something in the next world. It's because God has already made you clean. He has already set you aside as holy. He has already justified you before his courtroom forever. Therefore, live in light of what Jesus has already done for you. If Jesus has done all of that, if the Spirit of God has already done all of that, then live in light of it. You are not filthy people. You are not greedy people, so stop being greedy. You are not thieves, so stop stealing. You're not sexually immoral before the throne of God, so stop being that. Be what Christ has made you to be. Be the very thing that the Spirit of God has given to you. Therefore, trust the Spirit with your possessions. Secondly, trust the Spirit with your passions. The second half of the passage changes tack again into a more indiscreet form of sin than we have had so far. But for the Corinthians, honestly, especially for Greco-Roman people, this was no big thing. The opportunity and the actual taking of that opportunity to go to prostitutes by men in this society was not seen as any big thing. It was normal, everyday practice. 
Paul clearly understands that this is perhaps going on, and so he takes charge of the situation and is going to answer some of their questions. And what he does is kind of quote mantras that they might have been using there and then provides answers for those mantras. Now, this is interesting and difficult for us. It's difficult for us because, well, he didn't use quote marks. Greek doesn't have anything like that. As a matter of fact, the, the writings that Paul would have been doing would have been in all caps and they wouldn't have had any spaces at all. And so there's very little room for what we call diacritical marks there. And when we do it in English, even as you read it in the text here, when we think that Paul is saying something that the Corinthians would have said, he'll, we'll put it in quotes. Now, obviously, if you were in Corinth or if you were Paul, you would know precisely when Paul's saying something that the Corinthians often said. If they hear around their little hallways all the time, hey, all things are lawful for me, then Paul would, in quoting that, you would say immediately, oh, that's not Paul saying that. He's, he's talking about us saying that. But we have a, a more difficult time with it. And so we put quotes around things which are quoting other people, which is common sense for most of us, apparently not for people who are presidents of Harvard, but nevertheless, for most of us, it's pretty common sense. The problem is we don't know exactly where to put it. Now, I think that the ESV and their translation have a couple of these wrong, and it's just a, a, an issue, I think, of trying to make sense of the passage. So that's why, instead of walking you through it and talking you through it, which is difficult, on the back of the sheet, you have a, a kind of distinct translation. It's using the words of the ESV. Some of those words have been changed. Um, basically, I've removed one word um, later on, but you can see in the bold print are what the Corinthians are saying, and the light print is Paul's response to those things. So it can be difficult. I think that this is the best way to understand the text, and I think it makes the text very understandable when otherwise I think it's kind of difficult to follow what Paul is saying. It's very interesting to me as well because the mantra that he begins with is, all things are lawful for me. And you would expect that Paul would come back and say, that is not true at all. It, it, not all things are lawful for you. There are some things that are wrong for you, some things that are evil, some things that are bad, some things that are immoral quite off the, right off the top. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he more helpfully answers with the two issues with that, is whether or not it's beneficial, whether or not it's helpful, whether or not it's good, and things that promote self-control. The Corinthians are saying in, in the first sense, before Paul even mentions prostitution, they're basically arguing this way. Listen, we're not held accountable to the Mosaic law, and there's nothing in the Greco-Roman law that says that this is wrong or bad. It, it's not illegal. It's not illegal. And frankly, Christians use that kind of reasoning all the time. I, I don't, there's no law against doing this, therefore it must be right. And Paul is quite clearly saying that is not the actual test about whether Christians ought to do anything at all. Whether or not it's against the law of the land, whether or not it's against the law of Moses is not the test. The test is, is it beneficial, is it good, and does it promote self-control? The second thing these Christians insist upon, and one of the reasons why they are allowing themselves to indulge in this particular act, is because of their understanding of the human body. Their quote, I think, is longer than the ESV gives credit to, 
Their quote is this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So they're saying, listen, sex and food, breathing, no different. It's just a bodily function. It's just something that you do with your body. And so it doesn't matter what you eat. It doesn't matter what you drink. It just doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter to God. We know it doesn't matter to God because in the end, all this all is going to be burned up anyway. It doesn't matter how you treat your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. God's going to eradicate it all anyway. This is an incredibly, by the way, modern way of thinking about sex, where sex is just a physical act. It's just something that you do. It might be a little more private than other sort of physical acts, but it's just a physical act. It has no greater connotation than that. And frankly, the world thinks that Christians are a little weird that we put such a great emphasis on the unity that happens in the sexual act. They seem to be saying the same thing. It's just, it's just something the body does. It's not a big deal. Paul's response then is quite clear to show that the body does matter to the Lord, that he does actually care what you do with the body. Far from being indifferent, he says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Jesus, God the Father, the Spirit truly do care about the body. They care about what you do with your body. They care about how you treat your body. And God raised up the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. And the resurrection really proves Paul's point here. You think that the body is of no value, then tell me, why did Jesus get up out of the grave as a physical man? He didn't get up a spirit, but equipped with hands and feet, working, kidneys and lungs. He breathed, he felt, he ate. He was a physical man. To say that the body doesn't matter to God makes no sense of almost basic Christian proclamations. What you do with your, your body matters to the Lord. Now, in here, I think that there's some good news for the Corinthians. I think that they actually knew that what they were doing was wrong. The way Paul talks, he makes it seem like this was a viable excuse and justification for you to engage in behavior that you knew you were wrong. Because he talks about, he says, don't you know that you're members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Like, they're okay doing that if they think the body is worthless, But the minute that you talk about Christ being joined to a prostitute, I think that they're on board. That's not okay. That's not okay. So they were were fine as long as they thought that the body didn't matter. But as soon as the body starts to matter, Paul believes that they're going to tip over into understanding that you can't just act with your body any way you want to. It is never okay to unite Jesus. Jesus shouldn't be connected with something like that. Therefore, he says, you are to flee sexual immorality. And Paul again quotes them, every sin a person commits is outside the body, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but what they mean by it is this. Sins are not, if the body is to be burned up, if the body doesn't matter to the Lord, then the real sins are sins that are committed outside of the body, sins that don't have any impact on the body. They're not bodily sins. Covetousness, lying, those things are real sins. The sins of the body, they're not really, you don't, you don't sin by eating, you don't sin by breathing, you don't sin by doing these kinds of things. Paul says, no, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body, and he explains exactly how that is, because the Spirit of the Lord dwells in you. That temple is to be holy and undefiled and pure always, because it is the home of the Holy Spirit. 
If you defile it, you are defiling the very home of the Holy Spirit. You are, you are making a mockery of the temple of the living God. Paul says, the sexually immoral person sins directly against his body. Or do you not know that the temple of the Lord is your body? That that is where the Spirit dwells? And again, he goes on to say something incredibly important. He doesn't say, friend, you need to reform your life and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can have a home with him forever. He doesn't say that you've got to fix yourself so that you can be made right with God. His appeal is, you've already been made right with God. So live that way. What does he say? You have been bought. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. The minute that the Spirit of God came into you, Jesus purchased you with a great and valuable price. You're not your own. You don't belong to your impulses. You don't belong to your passions. You are to have control over those things, not be driven by them, which is clearly what's going on here in Corinth. They wanted to do these things. And so they went through all these mechanisms to justify their behavior. And Paul says, you know better. Glorify God with your body, for he has already purchased you. You are already his. In Christ, you are clean, and you are pure, and you are holy. So, my goodness, live that way. Be the person Christ has made you to be. We often make things harder than we have to be. It's because things are oftentimes incredibly difficult. We have a lot of choices and options in the world. But in the end, we push for this. Christ died to give us life, to purchase us back from death and to make us his. He cleansed us, he purified us, he sanctified us, he justified us, and one day he will glorify us. So if this is who we are, let us live like who we are. We are not becoming anything that we weren't before. We are living more and more like what we truly are. And this is the goal and the end of morality and ethics for us. Let us be who Christ has made us to be. Let us be that way in how we handle our possessions. Let us be that way in how we control our passions. In all of life, we are to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, not because he is coming, but because he already has. Let's pray. Father, you have given us the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our Savior and our friend. He is kind to us, in all ways. Loving, forgiving, pursuing. He's gentle with us and fierce towards those who would stand against us. Help us to see what he has done for us clearly, that we may more and more live in light of that which he has created us to be. Grant this in us for our good and for your glory. Amen.